Good morning and Merry Christmas, Emmanuel. If, uh, if I haven't gotten the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Aaron Boswell. I am a pastor, church planter, and director of internships uh, in Vancouver, Canada. Also, I am related to somebody that's on staff here. Uh, let you guess which one. And uh, I had the privilege of, of partnering uh, with you as a faith family uh, for the last 10 year, almost 10 years, uh, which is crazy. Uh, last night, I was reminiscing a little bit as I was preparing for this morning. Uh, so in the same way that when we gather together around Christmas time, we remind one another of the old stories that have been, right? The fish get larger, the snow gets deeper, uh, the basements get colder right? Uh, the longer uh, time goes on. But uh, what I want to do is to remind us and, and to reflect on um, really the role that this faith family has played in my heart and life over the last 10 years before we get started uh, as, a, as, a, as a means by which to uh, remind us of God's grace um, and to remind you of the special place that you have in my heart uh, as a church. Does that sound okay? Praise God. Uh, praise God. So uh, I first came to Emmanuel when I was 21, which was nine years ago. I know I look like I'm 22. I'm not. Uh, when I was 21 during a transitional season in my life uh, where I was preparing to move with the International Mission Board to France um, and was in, in route on my way to France, I landed here. I was like, I'm going to be here two months. And then God changed some laws in France and a lot of our IMB personnel had to leave France for 366 days. And I was like, hey, I'm here longer. Uh, so I, uh, I got a job at Bradley Fair at Banana Republic. It was awesome. And uh, I learned how to fold clothes really well. I hadn't learned up until that point, really. Uh, but I feel like now I'm, I'm set, really, for life. And, uh, and Emmanuel was my church home for about seven months as I waited to see maybe what God was calling and leading me into next. And then God opened the door for me to go to France for six months with a, with a program that we have through the International Mission Board called Hands On. So if you're a university student, you're going into university or college, and you're saying, man, maybe I'd like to, for six months of my life, consider uh, maybe international missions or those kinds of things, uh, there's a plethora of options for you. Um, and we'd love to chat with you about that. Um, and so I, I went to France for a few months, and then I came home from that, and uh, it was this church family that was my sponsor church for when I went and finished up my undergrad at the college at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and I went through a church planting training school there at a local church, and then after I graduated from my undergrad and from this, this program, it was this church, in fact, right here in front of me, where uh, this faith family ordained me as a pastor. That was a special, special day uh, for me, uh, having my grandfather, uh, my dad, my brother, and, and, and many of, of the pastors and leaders here just to lay hands on us and pray over us. It was just phenomenal. And then this church was, was the only church that partnered with us as we went with the North American Mission Board to plant our first church in Winnipeg, Manitoba. How many of you went on a mission trip to Winnipeg, Manitoba? A few of you. You were there during the summer. Uh, right? Winter, it's brutal. Uh, but it was, it was awesome. It was a really phenomenal time together. So we were there three years, and then we were three years in Montreal, planting a church there, and, and then now we've just moved to Vancouver. Um, and all along that, we've been trying to start different churches, make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And, and now I'm in my current role of discipling and training future Canadian pastors and leaders alongside of trying to plant a church and, and aiming to see how we can plant not just one church, but, but multiple churches. Uh, so that's kind of what we're dreaming about. Samantha and I, my wife, we're dreaming and scheming of how do we not just, not just orient ourselves around one church, but how do we multiply this? Uh, and so we'd love your prayers in that, uh, and, and we look forward to seeing how God is going to do that as we've been trying to litter churches really all across Canada. Um, and uh, we, as, as a faith family, you as a faith family, you've been with me all the way through this whole process. Um, as we, you've been praying for us, you've been giving financially to us. Um, I don't know if you know this, but a little bit of every, every offering and tithe that you give to Emmanuel, Emmanuel says, hey, we want to leverage that and, and give that into church planting. And so I don't know if you know that you have been supporting guys like me and other church planters all around, all around North America simply by tithing and by giving offerings every month. And so I would like to say on behalf of your generosity as a faith family, thank you and praise God for you. 
Apart from your partnership, there's no way that we would have been in Winnipeg and Montreal and now Vancouver. And so there's six and a half years now of sharing the gospel and our lives in Canada that would have been impossible apart from your faith giving. And so God has really blessed a lot of that. I love the, what we just said a minute ago is walking into offering that, that God doesn't need our offerings, but he uses them. And, and I'm a direct beneficiary of God's grace in and through this faith family. And it's kind of like divine take your kid to work day, right? Where you feel like you get a little bit more in the way than you do help, but dad's glad you're there, sort of. Um, you're glad to be there. Uh, and he chooses that he wants you to be there and loves you. And so that's what we, we love about our great and glorious God is that he's not a dad who gets upset with us that we're around, but he loves it and chooses to work in and through us as his people. And so I just wanted to let you rem- reminisce a little bit on that and just remind you of, of how, how special this church is in, in my life, in my heart, in the life of our family. And, uh, and to thank you and to let you know I love you and I'm so thankful to be here with you. Opening up God's word this morning as we're considering Jesus, the light that has come. And so if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Chapters are the big numbers, uh, and the verses are 1 to 7. Those are the smaller numbers. If you need to look in the front of your Bible to find out where the book of Isaiah is, no judgment. Uh, No judgment. Just open up the table of contents. It'll tell you where. And then you're looking for big number 9, little verses 1 to 7. So that's the main text that we're going to be examining together as we find ourselves in this series called Light Has Come. And as you're turning here, you might be aware that Christians really use a word around the Christmas season, this word called Advent. And and it's a word that may be a little bit new for you if you're newer to Christianity, newer around those things. If you come from a faith tradition that don't use a word like Advent to describe this season. So I want to explain a little bit about what that means. So the word Advent is a word that simply means arrival. And it's the time where as Christians, we celebrate two major things. First, we celebrate celebrate the very first Advent, how God the Son, Jesus, laid humanity along side of to this divinity and stepped into time uh, as we, as we uh, celebrate this time of year, specifically as we see manger scenes and celebrate Christmas tonight and tomorrow. That's what we're celebrating, that, that God has entered into our world. And then secondly, as Christians, we reflect upon how we, along with all of creation, are awaiting for the second coming of Jesus. So Advent has this dual purpose, this he has come, yes, we're waiting for him to come again. So it's this dual season. So, so maybe for some of you that are married, you had that season where you waited until you were going to get married, this engagement period, and you got married, and then you got pregnant, and then you waited to have this baby. It's the second Advent that changed everything, uh, right? And in the second coming of Christ, everything will be drastically different than we see it now. And, and I mention that not because uh, it's just a fun little tidbit about the Bible or the holiday season, but, but because of the text that we're working through today. See, there are, there are certain texts that as we walk through the Bible, we see that they actually have a dual purpose, for us as we read them. And that wasn't maybe evident from the very beginning. Like when Isaiah is penning this, he maybe doesn't realize there's, there's kind of a duality of meaning that we're about to walk through. But now we, after Jesus has come and been born and lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die and rose from the grave and, point, and told how all of scripture points to him and its fulfillment, we look back at texts like the one that we're walking through today and we say, there's a first advent that it's talking about but there's a second advent that it's talking about as well. And so this text that we're walking in today, it has both of those. So, so we're celebrating the first advent today and looking forward to the second one. All right? Good. All right. You're with me. We're awake. We're alive. Good. So um, it has this duality of purposes. And so today as we're walking through, we're going to be making three observations together. And I'm going to give them to you right up front. That way, if any of you are my note takers, my type A personalities, you are ready to go, right? Okay, so point number one is the necessity of light coming into the world. Number two is the effects of light coming into the world. And three is the hopeful expectation of that which is yet to come, specifically the day when all things will be made right in this broken world, when all sad things will become untrue. We'll leave that up for you for a moment for those of you who are note takers and you're like, oh no, I didn't get it yet. 
Don't worry, it'll be there for another minute. Now, one last thing before we read together is that I want to give a special welcome to you. If this is your very first time at Emmanuel, we are very thankful that you are here with us. Merry Christmas to you. This is a church that loves God, loves his word, loves people, loves sharing the hope of Jesus with people, and we're glad that you're here. Um, For those of you who are regular members um, or attenders, we're we're super thankful to see you as well. Uh, It's my joy to be here and, uh, and to hug your neck, even Clint, as I was walking down, just gave him a big hug, and he told me I was looking spiffy. It's my, it's my Christmas get-up, is what it is. Praise God. Praise God. So, uh, what we'll do is we will uh, pray, and then we'll walk into our text together. So, let's pray together. So, Father, I thank you for this church and these people and how deeply that you love them. Thank you that you're working miracles in our midst, bringing light into darkness. Think about those who last year, two years ago, were not people who knew you, and yet now they are your sons and your daughters, and we, and we praise you for them. Thank you that you're working miracles. Light is entering into darkness. And we pray that as we open your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend and hearts that are renewed by your undeserved kindness. God, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Pray, God, that you would bring light that convicts us of our sin and convinces us of the truth of Jesus. God, so that we will be forever changed, that we'll be given true hope and comfort and joy that is eternal. God, we only dare approach you and ask all these things as we're covered in the innocence of Jesus. We ask these things in his name and authority. Amen. All right, well, let's read together from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. These these people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as a joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray one more time before we dive in. So Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you are a God who wants to be known by us. Hence, Christmas, your first advent. You're not a God who hides in the heavens, but one who wants to make known to us who you are and how we may have a right relationship with you. And we thank you that you've entered into our darkest of spaces. God, thank you for your kindness extended to us through Jesus. And we pray that as we're walking through your word, you grow us in love and affection for you. God, I pray you'd work in powerful times during our time this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. Heads up. We are going to be spending the majority of our time together this morning examining those first two observations that I made. One is the necessity of light coming into the world. And secondly, the effects of light coming into the world. So we're not going to get past, much past, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So I wanted to give you fair warning. Uh, I was trying this this week to cram as much as I possibly could into our time together so that it would be fruitful for us. But the sheer volume of sermons and books that could be given and written about this text is incredible. In fact, the longer that I studied this text, the more that I actually found that it's much more like a mine. That the further down you go, the more beautiful the diamonds and crystals get. And there's just more and more and more and more of them. The further down you study into God's word. And So forgive me if I will not mention everything maybe from this text that you love or that you think is delightful or wonderful. Um, I, I want to, and if we could spend all the way from now until New Year's Day together, we could cover it. But alas, 
We cannot. Well, we could. I'm here until New Year's Day, but we won't. Uh, So let's begin this morning by turning our focus and our attention to the very first observation, the necessity of light coming into the world. Or more specifically, why we need the light of the world to come in the first place. So we see this as we begin to dive into verse 1 and are immediately confronted. This first word that we see in verse 1, what is it? It's the word but, which lets us know that we're walking into the middle of a conversation. So uh, when we come across this word in Scripture, what I want us to know is when you're starting to read somewhere and you see the word but or therefore or something else, that, that what it means is what's coming right after it is directly impacted by that which just came before it. Right, like I said, hey, I'd love to come over to your house. I think that's wonderful. And man, I just love you. I'm thankful for your friendship. And you are just a joy and a delight to me. But I can't because I'm sick. If all you get is, but I can't because I'm sick, you miss a lot of wonderful things you probably want to hear about yourself uh, and about our relationship, right? So, so as we're walking into this text, first thing that we're going to do is pause and, and, and think of what, are, what is going on right beforehand. And, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 8 because it comes right before chapter 9. I'm publicly school educated, but that I know to be true. Uh, But I don't mean just that eight comes before nine, but I mean the context of eight flows into verse nine, specifically where it talks about light and darkness, okay? And so um, we we want to see how these are tied inextricably together and what is going on within the context of what we're seeing into, um, into chapter eight and chapter nine. Because chapter nine starts by bringing hope into a situation that looks hopeless, So if we don't know why it's hopeless, then the hope would not feel as weighty and as joyful for us. So what we see happening in chapter 8, even if you just glance at chapter 8 in your Bible, right above chapter 8, verse 1, you notice there are one, two, three, four words in my Bible. It says, the coming Assyrian invasion. So immediately you're like, something bleak is going on. I don't know what it is yet, but something horrible is, uh, is afoot. So their enemies are coming to take them as exiles and to force them out of their situation, which, which leaves us asking again, why? Why are they coming to invade Israel? And to answer this, we need to zoom out a little bit further and to the bigger story of God. See, Israel, within the Old Testament context, has this very special relationship with God, the, the covenant God of the Bible, that he will be their God and they will be his people. It is a covenant that was put on full display when Israel found themselves in Egypt and God himself came after them to liberate them with sign after sign of his superiority over the gods of Israel. Egypt. And God rescued them and led them away into uh, the wilderness, which would lead into the promised land. And God preserved them for these 40 years in the wilderness until he brought them into the land that he promised. And the nations of the world paid attention. The nations of the world saw God go into this nation that was enslaving his people and liberate them. And they paid attention. They recognized that God's power and might, that there's never been a God like the God of Israel, comes after them and sets them free inside of another nation. And as God led them into the land that he promised to give them as their king, leading them into victory, into a land that he would give them. God makes a covenant with his people that now as his ransomed people who are saved by the wonder-working power of his might, they were to live in light of his salvation of them and they were to be faithful to him. They must live according to a new standard of laws and a new commandments that he is giving as their new king. And as they are faithful to God's laws and God's voice, they would be a beacon of light into the nations of the world. Get this, Israel was not chosen by God just so they may be like, oh great, we're safe and secure, this is awesome. Now, they were chosen by God that they may be a beacon of light into the nations of the world, beckoning them to come and to see what God is like by how they live their lives together underneath the rule and reign of God as their savior and king. They were to be like a really good movie preview. Have you ever, you ever seen a movie preview and gone to see the movie and you're like, that is not the same. Hook, line, sinker swindled me into this movie. That was horrible. 
right? That is not what Israel is to be like. They're to be a preview that, that presents well. This is what the God of Israel is like, come and see. So, so is there like this movie preview beckoning people to come and see and taste and know that the God of Israel is good and is rightly to be praised and worshiped and adored as the only God, the only creator God of the universe who deserves our affection, our desire and our love and our faithfulness. And God promised them in Deuteronomy 28 that if they continued to follow him and to obey his voice, that he would set them high above the nations of the earth. Not only that, but God promised them provision. He promised they'd multiply, that they'd have lots of babies, just tons of babies, that their enemies would be defeated before them and that they would have an abundance of food. Life would go well for them if they obey the voice of God, if they listen to their king. See, they are to be sort of like a photo of God into the world so that people can see who God is like. So this is their relationship with God. If they are faithful to worship God alone, to obey his voice as their redeemer and as their king, God will bless them. God will keep them. God will never let harmful things happen to them. No one would ever enslave them. But... God also warns Israel immediately after this in the rest of Deuteronomy 28. In fact, if you, if you even flip to Deuteronomy chapter 28 in your Bible quickly, you'll see that the blessing of God is very tiny. These are what the blessings are. The cursings of God are a lot longer of what will happen if Israel rebels against God's voice and does not listen to him and does not obey him. If they start worshiping false gods, if they don't listen to God's voice, if they don't follow him, if they don't obey his laws and his commandments, then God would strip them out of the land that he had given them. Not only this, but God would take away all of his provision for them. He would decimate them. They would be left to 10% of that which they once were. Everything would be taken from them. Because you see, to God, it's much more important that his people are this beacon of light, this movie preview that talk about the character and the nature of God accurately and perfectly and flawlessly because God cares about his name and his glory and he cares about the nations. He wants the nations to see this new people living for his glory, his honor, and his fame and see something beautiful of the character and the nature of God. So rebellion would be catastrophic because what rebellion is and not listening to the voice of God is basically looking to the nations and saying, God is not faithful. God is not kind. God is not loving. God is not true to his word. God cannot be trusted. God worships other pagan gods and idols and he's powerless. And God refuses to allow Israel to speak wrongly of who he is by their actions. And he lets them know that up front. It's kind of like with my son, he doesn't understand this yet. He's almost three. But uh, oftentimes I sit him down when we're having a little talk. Dads know what I mean. You're having a little talk. And, uh, and I say, Owen, I say, buddy, you have two choices here. You have the way, I, this is how I say it to him. He's three, he doesn't understand. I say, there's a way of blessing where you don't get any kind of um, spanking or anything's taken away from you. There's another route that you can go down and it is not a good route for you. Which one would you like to go down? And he always says, this one. I'm like, good boy. That's right. All right, let's go for this one. Uh, and this is what God does with his people. He says, listen, do you want blessing or cursing? I want to bless you. But if you disobey me, there will be cursings that will come upon you. And so now we'll zoom back into Isaiah chapter 8, 1 to 10. And what we see in Isaiah chapter 8, 1 through 10 is this Assyrian invasion is promised. It will come. Because we now understand from Deuteronomy 28 that Israel has been faithless to God. They're guilty for rebelling against God and they deserve nothing before him but judgment. We also know from their history that God has been long-suffering with them, generation after generation, prophet after prophet, calling them into faithfulness. God has been long-suffering them. But there comes a time when out of love, God looks at his people and says, now I must walk into judgment of you. We now have to walk in discipline. It's when your daddy voice switches and no longer is it, oh, hey, it's, boy, sit down, right? Like, daddy's voice is coming out in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. He's letting them know what's coming for them. 
because there comes a time when out of love, God brings about discipline to his people and gives them exactly what he promised that he would give them if they disobeyed. So the stunning indictment is that because of Israel's rebellion against God, that Assyria, a pagan nation, they're coming and they're going to lay siege and they're going to destroy Israel, taking them away as exiles into a foreign land. And the heart of Israel is put on full display in the next verses, verses 11 through 22 in their response. And what we see is that when, when Israel's security is threatened, they do not turn to God in faith and renew their commitment to him. No, instead of turning to God and fearing him rightly and obeying his commands, which is the very intent of God's discipline, they become hardened in their opposition to him. In fact, what we see in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, is that they instead, they don't inquire of God any longer. They run to mediums and necromancers, inquiring of the dead to false gods to give them some sort of hope for the future. They refuse to come to God as a sanctuary, so God will come to them as a stone of offense and as a rock of stumbling. So the indictment against them is they've broken his laws and rejected his words and his judgments. So we read at the very end of chapter 8 of Isaiah that God gives them over to their own darkness. The light of his merciful presence will be withheld from them, and God gives them exactly what they want, which is darkness. And we see in verse 22 of chapter 8, if you want to look with me, that Israel finds themselves in distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. See, the things that they thought would satisfy their hearts are incapable of doing so. The things they thought would bring them safety and assurance have instead brought them destruction and despair. And they didn't get there overnight, but with little adjustments along the way, as fears crept in and tempted them away from their rock-solid confidence in the word of God and the character of God and the judgments of God until Israel themselves find themselves rejecting everything and instead dwelling and choosing darkness instead of light. And Isaiah 8 ends with one of the saddest phrases of all scripture. Listen, listen to this phrase. And they will be thrust into thick darkness, meaning they will be separated from the light of God's kind presence and thrust into the thick darkness of God's judgment. And it's here when reading the Old Testament narrative in texts like this that we should rightly pause and reflect because the consequences that Israel faced because of their rejection of God's word and his judgments, they're the exact same consequences that the Bible explains are deserved for all of us by nature. For as Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And as Romans 1, 18 to 23 explains, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the thing that we see when we read the Old Testament narrative, we stop and we pause and we realize. So Israel, when they hear about that they deserve God's judgment, what do they do? They run anywhere else other than to God, the one whom they have offended and the one whom they're accountable to. And they run to other places trying to find security and hope. Seeing about this this past week, think, think about your life. When the things in your life when the security that you have is threatened, when your hope for a future is gone, where do you turn to? Do you turn to your bank account? Well, I lost my job, but I still got a lot of money. I'm okay. Do you turn to your personality? Do you turn to your resume, your schools? Do you turn to your, well, I still have my, my wife and kids? Do you turn other places? Do you, do you turn to Netflix? Turn to some adult beverages? When your hope and security is threatened, you turn somewhere 
other than to God. Naturally. No, nobody naturally says, all of my life, my, I'm threatened, my security is threatened. Oh, I must naturally just turn to God then. He's my only source of help in, tr- in trouble in time of need. No one's heart naturally does that. Your heart, my heart, all of our heart naturally turns somewhere. So can I ask you, where does yours turn to? Where does yours turn to? Because see, this is us. Our natural inclinations are to turn away from the light that has come. And when we do, we deserve nothing before God except to be thrust into thick darkness, into God's judgment. And that's where we're all headed by birth. This is what we deserve and that we have earned. All of us by nature, we're only headed towards eternal thickness of dark judgment. Where there are flames of fire and yet no light which is a scary thing. Something I can't even comprehend, how there's fire and yet no light, thick darkness. See, we often think of, we often think of maybe the next life, the future, and we think about maybe heaven is the presence of, of God, we're, we're in God's presence. Hell is maybe the absence of God's presence. And yet we believe that our God is omnipresent, which means he's present everywhere. So if we know he's present everywhere, yet we maybe naturally think, oh, maybe God's here, but not God's there, then one of those two things is wrong. We are wrong. So what we see in scripture is God is sovereign over it all. He is God over it all, and there's nowhere where he's not. And so heaven, yes, the beneficent presence of God for all eternity, praise God. Hell is the absence of of God's beneficent, kind presence where we're thrust into the thick darkness of his judgment for all time and forevermore, for eternity. It's a scary thing to be underneath the judgment of a holy God who knows you more than you know yourself. And scripture says this, we're all headed. But... God has made a way for us to be saved. God has made a way for us who deserve nothing but judgment to know hope, comfort, and have assurance, and joy, and life. We who deserve nothing but facing the divine wrath of God for all time have a savior, Jesus See, this is, I heard a pastor say this past week that Christmas is first an indictment before it is a delight. So it's an indictment. Christmas is an indictment because you and I cannot please God on our own. We all need a savior. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of religious perfection, morality, bank account, good works, more, nothing. Nothing, nothing that we do beckons to God and say, hey, I deserve your mercy and kindness. All that we do beckons to God and say, I only deserve judgment before you. So Christmas is first an indictment because it says you cannot save yourself so much so that God himself must lay humanity alongside of divinity and step into time to live the life you should have lived, a life that always obeys God, and then die the death that you deserve to die. Praise God. Because if left to our own, we would never choose him. But God in his grace looks upon us with kindness. Light enters into the darkest parts of our hearts and says, I will give you life and I will cleanse you. Sin is so meshed into the fabric of who we are. We could could never please God apart from his kindness given to us that cleanses us And now, filled with the Spirit, we we live lives that please God under Christ. But beforehand, no hope. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 explains it like this. That we have the same God who said at the beginning of time, let light shine out of darkness, shine into our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. See, Christmas beckons us that we all need a Savior. And that's what it's all about light invading the darkest parts of our hearts. And then our second observation, the effects 
of light coming into the world. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 together. So let's read it one more time. Actually, let's start in verse 822. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Listen, listen to this horrible situation. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see the turn there? If you don't understand how horrible of a situation they're walking into, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish makes no sense to you. Now it's a phrase that says, praise God. There will be a day where there will be no anguish. Where there once was, there will no longer be. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them his light has shone. See, and here we hear, see, we hear, um, we have, sorry, demonstrated the great love of God for his people. That, that even as they are, as Israel, as they're about to walk into judgment, as Assyria is coming for them, as they're walking into that because of their rebellion against them, what does God tell them before they go? Hope. He gives them Hope of a coming day where he would take away the reproach that they're about to walk into. They would be his people. His light would come and transform them and bring them joy and satisfaction. So get this, before an Assyrian boot ever lands in Israel, God has already made a promise that he's gonna restore and redeem them, shining light into their thick darkness to bring about hope. It's the same way that when, with Adam and Eve, when God speaks judgment against them, what does God tell Eve? In her judgment, as she's about to be kicked out of the garden, there will come a son. See that? Into her judgment, he speaks hope. Here in Isaiah, Israel is about to be taken into judgment, but God gives hope to let them know there's coming a day where I will rectify and restore all of this. And God says that he will begin, begin this great work of bringing light into the darkness. But surprisingly, guess what? It's not in Jerusalem, nor is it in Bethlehem. Surprisingly, it's in Zebulun and Naphtali, which may not mean anything to you. But it is the most northern border of Israel. This is where those two tribes were. They were the very first tribes that would have been attacked by Israel. So in the, land, in the place where they were very first humiliated, very first taken into judgment at this northern border and exiled into judgment, there is where God's judgment came first, but there would be where the light of his grace came first. Do you see the joy of that? So that where judgment traveled down into the rest of Israel to take them into exile, God's judgment or God's blessings would travel down through the rest of Israel and bring them into deep freedom and deep joy, which is this. It brings joy to our hearts when we think of this, that God often speaks light into the spaces of our deepest darkness. God often speaks light into the places of our deepest darkness so that, so that when you're thinking about your relationship with God and you think, well, God could never forgive me. Maybe he could forgive you, preacher boy. Little sins that you have. God could never forgive me for what I've done. God says, that place of deepest darkness, that sin that you think is possible for God to forgive you from, into that place, light wants to come. That even that sin that you're thinking about right now, that you're like, man, but not this one. Even, even that one. God wants to make you whiter than snow. God wants to purify you and take away every ounce of impurity in your life. God's promises are life-giving and they're joy-sustaining. That's why every night during family worship, where we gather together as a family to read the Bible and pray and sing together. Um, one of my son's very favorite songs is a song that, that I, I heard from an app once. Um, that was a scripture memory app. And uh, it's Isaiah 48, 40, verse 8. Uh, and it is, the grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God will stand forever. It's so cute. He's, 
when we get to stand forever, he goes, stand forever. It's awesome. It's, uh, it's the coolest little thing you've ever seen. And, and what I'm trying to do early on into his life is to help him see, just as Israel had to see, that God is going to be faithful and true no matter what comes into your life. His word can always be trusted. And one of the most interesting things about the promises of God given to us in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, is, is that Israel is going to be brought back into the promised land, right? If you, if you remember uh, your biblical history, uh, as soon as Jerusalem falls, about 70 years later, they're brought back into the promised land. Um, but what we notice is when they're brought back, that loads of Isaiah's prophecies are never fulfilled in that time when they come back. They're left unfulfilled until the birth of Jesus when God himself lays humanity on side of his divinity and steps into time to become the light of the world and enter into these deep, dark spaces to bring light and life. And in fact, what we see is, is when we're looking at the New Testament authors, they can't help but do this with the book of Isaiah and other books. Is they look back on the life of Jesus and they say, that's what Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling in his first coming all that he promised to give. In fact, we see Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 18. He looks back at Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 and says, fulfilled. Fulfilled in Jesus. Because did you know the majority of Jesus's ministry in life? Do you know where he taught and did the most amount of miracles? Galilee. Otherwise known as the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Huh, isn't that cool? I said that to you, I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. I'm reading through the Bible with one of my friends who's one of my neighbors, and, uh, and we were reading in Luke 4 the other day, and the first like recorded miracle of Jesus in, in Luke, Luke, it come Luke 4, do you know what it is? The casting out of a demon in a gathering, sort of like this, somebody stands up, starts going, Jesus is like, get out of him, uh, demon just flees. Later that night, goes to Simon Peter's mom's house and heals her of a, of a fever she had. And then it said that people in the town, that they all kind of brought all of their sick to him and he healed all of them, which I don't know how many people that is. I don't know how big that city that was, but I imagine it's like more than 10, probably less than 10,000. But a lot of people uh, were healed that day. He begins to do this work that he promises. And Matthew looks back and says, fulfilled. This has been fulfilled in Jesus. Light has pierced into the darkness. And so so we see this necessity in the effects of the first advent, the light has come. But what I'd like for us to do lastly is to observe the hopeful expectation of that which is yet to come. And this will be by far our shortest part. If you're like, man, there's like, there's four verses left. You've only made it through two. Uh, It'll be our shortest of all of our sections. Um, What we're going to kind of do is a, a shotgun approach portion of our sermon. Uh, For everything that we're going to see in the next few verses could be a sermon or a collection of sermons. But for us this morning, we're simply going to notice a few markers of the kingdom of Jesus. There's seven of them. And as we wrap up verses three to seven, I'd love for you to process through on on the drive home or on lunch tables today or tonight after the kids go down to process through what this coming kingdom of God will look like in chapter nine, verses three to seven. So I'll give you a few markers that we see of of what is the new kingdom going to look like when Jesus comes in his second advent to set up his kingdom here upon the earth. So first is blessing. If you look at verse 3, the nation will be multiplied. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be part of this new family and will fill the earth. Which, which, which if you think the word multiply and, and people being blessed and people filling the earth and subduing it? What does that make you think of? Adam, Adam and Eve. The command of God for us as mankind, except for in Jesus' kingdom, it will not come about through procreation. It will come about through regeneration as men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue are brought together into the family of God. And the earth one day will be subdued and we will fill it. If, you're, if your idea of when the second coming of Jesus comes is like we're all just sitting around playing harps and chilling, it's the opposite of what we see in Scripture. If you look at Adam in a pre-fallen world, what is homeboy doing? Working. Hard. He's not sitting around by the pool all day just chilling, sunbathing with Eve. There's a homeboy's working. 
So this new kingdom, we'll see this blessing, this multiplication of God. Secondly, you'll see joy. We'll be filled with such deep and abiding joy. All of the blessings of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 will be ours. Third is freedom. I'm gonna read verses four and five for you because they're kind of the most weird text. You're reading a Christmas text and then it's just like, where did that come from? Like, listen to this. Like, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian, which if you're a note taker, that harkens back to Judges 6 where God saves all of Israel, not by their might, but out of his grace. It's fun for you to study later on today. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be, rolled, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Merry Christmas. Right, like, what's that doing in the Christmas text? You know what I mean? You show up here, you're like, what, what in the world are you guys talking about? And what we see in, in verse five is this beautiful this beautiful hearkening back to us to remind us that one day there's coming where there will be neither boot nor bloody garment because war will be no more. That when Jesus rules over the earth, there will be no war or rumors of war. There will be no death. There will be only be life. And so he's letting them know, hey, there's a day coming where there one day will be no more war. Um, Isaiah 11, he extends on that. So if you wanna study more about that, Isaiah 11. Blessings on you. Um, so, blessing, joy, freedom. Verse four, Jesus' leader, or chapter, or point four, Mark four. Um, Jesus' leadership and governance over as the true and better king of Israel. So you can say he's king of Israel. Which he fulfills all of Deuteronomy 17, the promises of the coming king. Five, increase and Peace that his rule will extend all over the world in a way similar to God's original design with Adam and Eve in the garden. Six, he will sit on the eternal throne of David, 2 Samuel 7. And then Mark 7, he will rule with justice and righteousness. Those are our seven marks of the kingdom. And as we process through some of those things, we see already that we have some of those in part. Things like we've been blessed in and through Jesus. We have joy that surpasses understanding as we're walking through really difficult things within our lives. We have freedom from our greatest enemy, sin, death, and the grave. But we also see that this text has only been partially fulfilled by Jesus. While a vast majority of it, we're waiting for it to come to fruition. And we know from Isaiah 9, verse 7, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do all that he promises in this text through the life and ministry of Jesus. So what we see is we have a, we have a taste of some of these things, but we look for more of it. I was thinking about this last night and this past week this future hope that we have. And this is, not, this is a time of year where everyone talks about hope and joy and comfort and Bunny rabbits and rainbows and guy in red that's gonna come later and, you know, all those things, these distractionary things. And I stopped for a moment and realized that, that for a lot of us, Christmas can be a really hard time. You know, you think about, um, you think about people that this year that are not gonna be around your table people that you've lost this year or, or people maybe in your family that because of sin, they don't wanna see you. You think about um, kids that you, that you wanted to be born and that you're expectant of and just waiting for the day when they would be born and then you, you lost them. And this Christmas is a reminder that that onesie that you hoped they would wear today, they didn't get to. Or you think about the kids that you had that have died that won't be here with you. Or you think about grandparents or parents or friends or cousins that you've lost this year or in the last five years or the last 10 years that you, that you won't get to see that you long to see, but you won't. You think about the way that, that all of our families are walking through some kind of sickness or death or cancer or tumors or brokenness in relationships because of sin. And see, this is, this is time, this is a season of deep joy. And yet it is also a season of deep sadness as we reflect. And all this is happening all at the same time.
But can I, can I speak hope into that? Can I speak a word of comfort and hope into your anguish and your hopelessness and your despair and what feels like thick darkness to you? That it's a hopeful time of the year because, because what we are in right now is, is what we know of as the yes and not yet of the kingdom. That Jesus has come and he's inaugurated his kingdom, but all things are not yet as they should be. And right now, we're just we're stuck in the middle of it. And it's messy, and there's a lot of questions, and we yearn for this coming day when he will come in his second advent and set up his kingdom here upon the, on the earth and, and during all of our lives. But especially this season, as we see things that we hate and things that we despise, we, we need to remember that God hates and despises those things too. So much so that there's coming a day where they will be banished from ever happening ever again. And he promises that to us. This day coming when those never more happen ever again. Every sad thing will become untrue. Every broken thing will be restored. There's coming a day. And until that day, we can walk in the awareness that our greatest enemy, sin, death, and the grave are gone. And we rejoice that the coming day of salvation is just around the corner, which is why we sing at this time of year, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's this longing in our souls Come, I hate this. And he says, oh, I'm coming, coming. And we know that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's why we have a comfort and a hope and a joy that far surpasses any other hope or comfort or joy that anyone else can offer you. That God has entered into our brokenness, plans to redeem and restore it. He's died in our place, risen from the grave, proving he's conquered over death. Then he promises he's coming again, set up his kingdom, and will never be thwarted. Zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And as we move now into a time of response, the preaching of God's words, one of the things that we love to do in response as a, as a faith family is that we just pause and we ask God to apply his word into our hearts, especially in the hustle and the bustle of the season. I don't know if you got babies or grandbabies at home. We do. Life is crazy. So we want to give you time during this, this, this time to pause and to meditate, to confess, to repent of sin, to commune with God. So we'd love for you to do that as we move into this time of meditating on the finished work of Jesus, the light of the world. And the second way that we respond that the light has come is that God comes and he convicts us of our sin. And so we're gonna have some pastors up front here in just a moment that would love to pray with you. And if there's something you need prayer for, they'd love to talk with you through whatever you're going through. They'd love to pray with you to help shed some light onto areas of your heart that if you were honest, you're a bit like Israel. You've hidden and it's been a long time. Now you feel like you need to come into the light. And we'd love to pray with you. So what we'll do is we'll pray together and then we'll enter into time of celebration and response. Uh, and then tonight when we gather together, we'll have our, our, uh, our Christmas Eve gathering. All right? All right, so let's pray together.